Lord, we ask that you would give food to your people out of this, your word. Amen. This is a special night for the church. First, it's uh, the holiest uh, culmination of a holy week. These three days, as Daniel mentioned, um, mark an intensification, not just of Holy Week, but of Lent. And it's a holy day that has at its center the commemoration of a meal. Like all good holidays that have meals that are attached to them. Think for a moment about how holidays work. There's a profound event in the life of a people. And then later, there's a festival that's established to commemorate it. Typically, the big festivals mark an event that's central to a people's founding narrative. You have the Declaration of Independence that's signed on July 4th. And then later, there's a holiday that commemorates it. Or in France, you have the storming of the Bastille. And then later, people say, I know, let's remember what's happened in the past, but, but not tonight. Tonight is different. This meal is different. This festival comes before the event that it celebrates. Our Lord asks us to drink wine and eat bread in remembrance of something He hasn't done yet, which is His sacrificial death on the cross. And twice He draws attention to the way that the meaning of this meal would not be fully realized until the fullness of the kingdom of God had come to earth. One way that we might get at the oddness and intentionality of this reversed order is with a, a simple thought experiment. Suppose for a moment that our Lord had instituted the commemoration of His Supper, His Holy Eucharist, after His resurrection. I mean, we know, for instance, that several times after He was raised from the dead, he ate and drank with his disciples. So why couldn't he have taken one of those opportunities to say, remember the victory that I won for you by dying and rising from the dead, and this do in remembrance of me. Take this bread, take this wine, and remember what's already happened. The fact that he does it here, though, suggests that he wanted to show us something about himself, not after the victory was accomplished, but in the thick of the plot, when the outcome was anything but secured. So what is it that our Lord is trying to show us? I think it's two things. While we can never plumb the depths of the mystery, of Holy Communion, I think there are two, 
two things we can point to tonight just by way of an uh, of initial gesture. I think our Lord is trying to show us something about ourselves and something about Himself. And I can even boil that down into one thing. I can combine them so we have a one-point sermon. I think He wants us to remember who we are in the light of who He is. And so who are we? Well, among other things, we're His betrayers. It's odd, isn't it, that Jesus takes this moment to speak to us very clearly about our failures. As though to say that what He's doing in giving the bread and wine and asking us to remember it on a holy day what He's doing is connected to what we're doing. Notice how Jesus ties them together in the space of a single breath. This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in My blood, but behold, the hand who, of Him who betrays Me is with Me on the table. Now, you might be thinking, well, what does this say about Me? It's Judas who is the betrayer. And you'd be right. But notice for a moment that neither Jesus' dialogue or Luke's narration of it mentions Judas in this scene at all. Jesus never outs him, calls him out, shames him. He, he never says, the hand of the one who will betray me is here on the table with me, and it's Judas. There he is. Get him, boys. Why? After all, he knew. But I think the answer is in the next verse. And they began to question one another. Which of them it would be who was going to do this? One of the other gospel writers reports that they turned to one another and said, it's not I, is it? Is it I? And in fact, every one of them, like every one of us, eventually betrayed Him and denied Him in one way or another. And I think Christ wants us to see who we are, only asking after asking some very hard questions about our role in His death. The sin that necessitates the death of Jesus isn't someone else's sin, somebody out there but it's His own disciples' sin, His best friends, the longtime churchgoers. And the meal that marks us as a community has betrayal at its very heart. Now that might seem like a pretty dark way of putting things, but ask yourself, what's the alternative? After all, what's, what's our usual human way of dealing with sin in ourselves and in others? I think we usually do one of two things. We either ignore it or overemphasize it. We either pretend it's not important 
or we see nothing else but sin. Isn't that the way it usually plays out? To the extent that we notice sin in someone else, we tend to overemphasize it, don't we? And the result is that we end up dehumanizing them. Why'd that person steal money from the company? Well, it's because he's a, he's a no-good, low-down, rotten thief. That's what thieves do, and he's a thief. That's why he sinned. That's, that's who he is. We don't see the person. We see only the sin. But notice how when the sin is ours, uh, we quickly tend to over-romanticize our own motives and uh, the, the complex nexus of our narrative embodied in storied selves. Theologian Paul Griffiths said that we have this tendency to confess our sins as though we are in the midst of a Proust novel. But perhaps a more faithful way to confess our sins would be to list them in the manner of a grocery list some way that showed how common and drab our sins make us. And you'll recall uh, C.S. Lewis says something very similar in a couple of places. That each of us presumes that our sin is what bestows freedom on us and makes us the most us. But in fact, we are, when we are at our most sinful, we're also at our most boring. But man, when it's somebody else's sin, it looks pretty boring from the outside, doesn't it? Of course, the other way to deal with sin is by pretending that it's not there. And that will work. That will work for you. As long as you don't want to have any deep relationships. But it's a terrible way to experience what all human beings truly long for, which is to know someone else and to be known for who they truly are. Because we are our histories. What we've done, the decisions we've made, the mistakes that we've made, the risks that we took, all of these things make up a large part of what it means to be us. And uh, there were some mistakes there. But there's a fear that we have that immediately creeps in as soon as we realize that. We realize that if we're going to be vulnerable with other people, and allow them to know us and take time to get to know them, that pretty soon, it's a dead level fact, as a matter of fact, something is going to happen. And one or both of us will see who the real other person really is, warts and all. And when that happens, what are we going to do? Pretend it didn't happen? You know, there's a kind of Christian theology that even pretends that this is how it is with God. We've sinned and done bad. Well, we can all see that. But in Christ, there's just so much love there that uh, it's as though God just pretends it didn't happen. 
as though what it means for God to love would mean the obliteration of His holiness. But that isn't love. That's banal and shallow to the extreme. To be truly loved is to be truly known, sin and all. So how then does God continue to love us even though He knows what we are? Again, I think we can draw an analogy from human relationships. We've all had relationships where hurts have happened and pain has been felt. Maybe because they were our spouse or sibling or business partner or whatever it was, we knew they couldn't get away from us even if they tried. And so we have to learn to forgive them and to be forgiven. In effect, saying, you've hurt me, yes. But I love you too much to let that be the end of the story between us. Or perhaps more importantly, you're too important to me than to allow my shame at having hurt you to be the last thing that passes between us. Again, I think it's something like this that helps us picture how it is between God and us. The biggest barrier to faith in my experience isn't that people don't believe in God or that they don't trust the Bible or, you know, they believe in science or something silly like that. No, the biggest barrier they have is the fear that their sin is going to be the last word between God and them. Their shame at betraying Him after they swore they wouldn't, well, it overwhelms them. And they either close themselves off from the love of God or they project their own closedness onto God and believe that God isn't good anymore. Saying to themselves, surely God couldn't love me after I did this to Him. But friends, God is not deterred even by our shame. He goes on and on and on, giving and giving and giving Himself anyway. And we know this because He told us that we would betray Him before we betrayed Him. And He told us that He would love us even then. God proves His love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He was proving it to us before it happened. While we were yet sinners, Christ gives us a sign of His love for us. He gives us concrete and tangible reminders before we need them so that when we need them, we'll remember that He knew who we were before He even gave Himself to, for us. In the Eucharist, we see that Christ, that with Christ, our sin isn't an ending, but a beginning. So when the Holy Spirit draws our attention to sin, it is never in order to shame us. After all, had Jesus wanted to shame Judas, He would have called him out and denounced him. But on the other hand, He did draw attention to His sin. He drew attention to it as a way of showing Judas how much He loved him. 
Even Judas's sin could have been a new beginning in, in the love of God had he not closed himself off from it. And if you want to see what that looks like, go to the story of Peter after the resurrection. And the same is true of our sin. It's not the end, but a beginning, or it should be. If you're willing to see yourself and your sin not on its own, but in light of the everlasting love of God, you will be transfixed by the depth of God's love. One of the early church fathers said that for saints, sin is a cause of rejoicing because it shows forth the depths of God's mercy. There's a similar thought in the ancient liturgy for the vigil of Easter. Oh, happy fault. Oh, happy fault that won for us so great a Redeemer. Happy fault? Or how about again? What we call the holy day that we celebrate tomorrow. Good Friday? Any of our non-Christian friends, if, if they're paying attention at all, should say, are you people freaks? You hung a, they hung a man on a tree and you call that good? But it is good and it is happy and it is joyful when we recognize our sin. Knowledge of our own faults shouldn't devastate us or send us into denial, but should be a cause for genuine thanksgiving. And that's why we call this holy meal Eucharist, which means thanksgiving. We give thanks for the bread and wine, yes. <laughs> but we also give thanks because God's love is real. It's real. It's not a fantasy. There's a realism to it. It's who we know ourselves to be for the first time ever. It's real. We learn to see ourselves in this meal by remembering that on the night He was betrayed, Christ took bread. He blessed it. He broke it. And He gave it. He took he took on human flesh and human life, assuming all that we are in all of its reality. Even though we took Him, we took Him by force with club and sword, He didn't shame us. Instead, He blessed us and healed us. We spat upon Him and reviled Him, but He forgave us and made a home for us. He was broken and beaten so that we might be made whole. We took His life. He gave us life. And only in the pattern of this life do we find our own future. And that's true of us as individuals and as a church. At St. Thomas, I think many of us have the feeling that we have been taken by Christ and gathered. A lot of us have found a home here when we didn't think that we would ever find another. <laughs> Only God could gather the likes of us. And we've, we've been blessed, have we not? 
God has given fruit and increase. That's undeniably true. So far, so good. All Christians and all churches love the part about being gathered and being blessed. But my question to you is, will we allow the Lord to break us? Will we allow God to provide for us out of His own life when our sin gets in the way of genuine community? Have you all ever noticed how many conversations we have around St. Thomas that invariably go to this, uh, this topic of... Uh, so where'd you used to go to church? We're still a group of people who until fairly recently were worshiping somewhere else, right? Some of us came into the church battered, hurt, and we need to rest. Some of us came into the church filled with energy and ready to engage and serve. No matter where you find yourself on that spectrum, no matter where you are in six months or even a year. There will come a time when you have to dig in emotionally and spiritually because that's how you're built. And if you do, you are going to find yourself face to face with the broken body of Christ in the church. And notice, friends, Christ breaks whatever He wants to give for the life of the world. If we want to be given for the life of the world, if we want to have a real mission and calling together, we have to allow Christ to confront us with our own brokenness and draw us more deeply into communion with our bro broken brothers and sisters in the church. But we can have the courage to do that because we have this promise from Christ. The meal that we share is a participation in His very life. He will provide what we need. He knows our betrayals. He experiences our pain at being betrayed. Every time the church gathers to receive His body and blood, we gather not only as, a peep, as the people who made it necessary for Christ to die, but we also gather as those who need to be shown again that there is nothing we have done and nothing we can do that will thwart the self-breaking love of God. Our sin is not an ending, but is a beginning. And I know that because I have experienced that here at St. Thomas. Not long after I came to St. Thomas, I said something once in a casual conversation that I didn't think too much about, but it cut someone very deeply. We had to talk through our misunderstanding with one another. And at the end, we cleared the air and forgave one another, each for their part. The next week, I was down front serving communion. And as I offered the body of Christ to this person, they touched me ever so gently on the wrist. And I'll, I'll never forget it. 
Because even though it was such a simple gesture, it forged a connection between the sacraments that we are receiving and the brokenness that we had to ask forgiveness for. As though to say, we're reconciled not merely because of our words, but because of His. And my dear brothers and sisters, whether we're reminded of it by gentle gestures or not, it is a fact that every single time we gather to remember the Lord's Supper, we gather again as those whose betrayals can never thwart the love of God. We are who we are because we do all of this in remembrance of Him. Amen.